Hi, this is Eric Gurna, President and CEO of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. Welcome again to Please Speak Freely. I'm your host, Eric Gurna, and I'm here in New York City with Baratunde Thurston. Welcome, Baratunde. Thank you, Eric. Good morning, good, good evening, morning. good night, whatever time it is people are listening. Exactly. Good t- unit of time to you. Yes, that's how podcasts are. You never know when someone's going to be listening <laughs> or what else world. they're doing while they're listening. Yep. Um, but we won't think about that too much. So uh, Baratunde is the CEO, co-founder, and hashtagger-in-chief of Cultivated Wit. That's your bio in sort of a nutshell, but I came to you because you uh, wrote the New York Times bestseller, How to Be Black. I did. Um, you also served for five years as director of digital for the satirical news outlet, The uh, Onion. Another true fact. Many yes. Many people know of. And I won't continue reading the bio because we can hear more about That's an awesome um, bio. What, you've, reading. <laughs> what you've done. Um, but maybe, maybe you could tell, we could start out, you could just tell us a little bit about what Cultivated Wit is because um, I actually don't, since I came to you through your recent book, yeah. um, How to Be Black, I, uh, which I have a hard time saying without laughing a little bit. Do you think blackness um, is funny, Eric? you think <laughs> race is just hilarious? Because it is. It's awesome. Well done. It's a comedy book. It's in the comedy section. It Eric's is. not being weird. I am just putting it I may spot. be being weird anyway. Well, but, it's an acceptable weirdness. Um, yeah. So what's Cultivated Wit? Cultivated Wit is a company that I helped start after leaving five years uh, at The Onion. It is... An organization that combines humor, design, and technology. Okay. We do that creatively to spread better ideas, to tell stories, to build products. So we're a bit of an agency, a bit of a production company for making media, uh-huh. uh, a product development company that builds apps, and we throw cool events for interesting people. We're ultimately trying to collapse the line between quote-unquote tech and mm-hmm. quote-unquote media. Okay. And humor and design is our special sauce. Okay. All right. So there's uh it's cultivatedwit.com yep. or okay yep. so people real can find crazy it. domain name cultivated wit I know we were risky um, and so you wrote this book how to be black yeah and as I was just saying before we got on the mic it, you managed to to name it something that's um, basically embarrassing for any to be anybody to be seen reading on the subway yeah and based on the internet it's worked because yeah. it hits the Reddit front page every couple of weeks uh-huh. it's like they can't get enough and a black person reading it. You know, raises the question of like, why? Right. Why do you need this? And then a white person reading it, it's like, uh, what's I wrong don't with you? Think it works right. like that. <laughs> An Asian person reading it, it's the same. Like, yeah. there's no non-absurd visual of someone holding a book with a Helvetica bold "How to Be Black" on the cover. Yeah. And some of the some of the chapters. Um, include how black are you right do you know what an oreo is how to be the black friend how to speak for all black people mm-hmm. how to be the black employee right yeah. so it would be hard for me to describe what this what this book is but um and i'd like to ask you too but my experience of it was um that it was first of all it was really funny okay but it good. was also it was an interesting and like engaging format to read because you you got this panel yeah the black panel to sort of write with you mm-hmm. in a way and interviewed them and they sort of chimed in every once in a while you call it the black panel yeah they were like my shakespearean course and you had like the the honorary or like token white person definitely um, so um there were seven people on the panel mm-hmm. three black men three black women for balance and mm-hmm. then one white canadian man mm-hmm. and he was a bit of a control group and a bit of a token and a bit of a 
target all at one. It was Christian Lander from stuff white people like. And I really wanted, like, a black person writing a book about race is not new. Mm -hmm. Or speaking about race. Like, any person of color talking about race is expected. And it's actually, like, a responsibility in the country that's been sort of abdicated to the colored folks. It's like, oh, you, like, women are supposed to talk about feminism. And black and brown people are supposed to talk about racism. And poor people are supposed to talk about poverty. And gay people are supposed to talk about gay rights. So. That's pretty silly if you want to actually like move the world forward. And so in my own book, I want to diversify the voices because I knew there was more on the subject than I had to offer, so a panel. But then I really wanted to put a white person on the spot because we're always getting put on the spot about race stuff. And I thought mm-hmm. it'd be funny. Mm-hmm. And I found like a pre-existing funny white person to play along who was also super smart and like uh, deliberate in his thoughts about some of these matters. Mm-hmm. So I think people got more than the gag might have lent yeah. itself to. Yeah. Well, and you say it was a comedy book and it was in the comedy section, but it also had a lot of like nuanced commentary and analysis and yeah. like reflection. I'm an amateur sociologist, you know, psychologist, spiritualist, mm-hmm. scientologist, uh, archaeologist. Yeah. <laughs> and what, what did you, I don't want to say, how did you want the world to change like, oh, man. as a result of your book? Uh, right. Every, yeah. I mean, if you, if you, if you invest in writing a book, mm-hmm. it's this huge thing. And, um, you know, I guess some people write books just for fun and profit, but this, you obviously had like your heart in this. And I'm just wondering like where you were coming from, like what, what kind of, how do you want things to move forward? And I don't know. That's a really general big question. But. Yeah. I, um, I wanted to add something to what I felt was a stagnant, um, conversation, mm-hmm. overused word about race, identity, politics that overlap. And so the way I'd love the world to change is for people to, anyone who feels like this gap between themselves, their sense of self, mm-hmm. and the world's sense of them, right? Mm-hmm. Here's who I am. Here's who you think I'm supposed to be. There's a hole there. And we can close it. Mm-hmm. We can come closer to closing. I don't think we can ever fully close it because can you ever really know a person? Like if you could, there'd be no divorce, you mm-hmm. know, like be no falling outs of friendship. So like we will always, and we change as people, but there's still a huge gap that I think is impeding our progress when, um, A, like we can't really talk much or intelligently about race because Mm -hmm. people are super offensive or defensive, Mm -hmm. and it's just like awkward. B, um, we are, you know, in a nation especially, which like prides itself on individualism and be who you are, yet we're really good at putting people in boxes Mm -hmm. and painting with like broad brushes about your capabilities and your goals and what you should be pursuing or not. So those are, and then the other is that um, the third, maybe it's the third thing, three is a good number, that generationally I felt like we had made a jump that our media and our politics and our discussion hadn't made with us. Mm. That we, I'm 36, Mm -hmm. I'm in this pseudo-Gen X, pseudo-Gen Y layer, and because Mm -hmm. of my techness, I lean a little more Gen Y, but because I'm like, I don't expect to be cheered on every single thing I do. I'm more Gen X. Um, and I can, like, remember President Reagan, and that's a little bit different for the pure millennials. Um, at any rate, you have this post-civil rights generation. Mm-hmm. And there was this promise, you know, of all that labor, like this literal revolution in the streets, blood flowed. And there's a simplistic expectation uh, by some that, like, oh, we're good now. You know, oh, we got the black president, you know, Oprah's doing great, mm-hmm. 
and you know, MLK's got a holiday. Like it's all great. Post racial. Post racial, and that's stupid. That's right. just not. That's a very dangerous concept, I think, because it impedes the depth of conversation. So I wanted a way to bring up those things without being annoying about it, mm-hmm. without being pedantic about it, without right. being like super preachy. Or literally, like, preachy. Like, I'm not a minister. Mm-hmm. I'm not holding rallies with the collar. And there are people who are great at that. But I felt like we had new tools yeah. to move that discussion forward. And someone of my generation had a chance to, like, add a drop to the bucket. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, it, those were some of the goals. Something that, that you said just now that really rung true for me about how I responded to the book was um, what you were talking about, about that gap between who you are and how, yeah. who the world is telling you mm-hmm. to be. And that was something I think I really identified with just this notion of sort of bucking against any, anything that feels like anybody's telling me what I'm supposed to be yeah. based on how I either look or like the generational thing you were yeah. just describing. Yeah. Um, and that was like, that felt like a real universal. Absolutely. Sort of- I mean, one of the most gratifying parts of the book, like, I have joked and said seriously, this book could be called How to Be X. Mm-hmm. And black is just the first version. It's the one I knew best. Yeah. There are, at minimum, chapters that every human being could write. Sure. You know, and I actually, I did a live show. And this just came up in a Twitter chat the other day, so it's fresh in my mind. But two years ago, actually, we're speaking on just about the two-year anniversary mm-hmm. of the book. So, happy anniversary, book. Happy anniversary. Uh, but we, I did a show one year ago in Los Angeles called How to Be Blank. Mm-hmm. It was a live show with maybe eight performers. I was just the last one mm-hmm. closing it out. And there was How to Be uh, a Gay American Southerner. And there was How to Be an, an Obese American Abroad. And mm-hmm. there was How to Be Sort of Indian. And there was How to Be a Fake Poor African. Like there was all these micro twists <laughs> of people essentially breaking some mold. Like you yeah. can't be Southern and Christian and gay. Right. What? That's right. crazy. And it's like, it turns out there's probably millions. Right. So anything that like nudges against those boundaries, yeah. I think is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, I learned about you from reading the book and also from listening to you on, on Mark Maron's podcast was, um, your experiences in school and, you know, please speak freely is about education and youth development. Yes. Um, and it was especially interesting to me. I was, I'm super excited to talk to you about Sidwell mm. because, um, I, I use Sidwell as an example a lot of times. And, and sometimes I realize like, I better be careful cause I'm, I actually don't know what I'm talking about <laughs> because it's like emblematic yeah. of, of us. It's like, the, the example that I use it for is that the, um, the folks in Washington and around the country mm-hmm. who are driving the education reform agenda right now, they don't send their own kids to the types of schools that they advocate. So they're right. advocating for a lot of high-stakes testing, a lot of uniformity, standardization, um, in a large way, privatization through the yeah. charter school movement yeah. um, and, and other um, tactics. And yet, you know... Arnie Duncan himself went to the lab school in Chicago. Um, Obama's daughters go to Sidwell. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a hypocrisy that's, that's so obvious there that mm-hmm. it sort of kills me. Um, and, and I imagine Sidwell as, um, you know, it's, to me it's emblematic of like the wealthy and very progressive school where, you know, maybe teachers call, maybe students call teachers by their first name and maybe there's a lot more sort of seminars and discussions and no one's forced to walk in single file straight lines with their, finger up to their lips um, as though it's sort of like a, a mock prison. Yeah. Um, the way that a lot of schools are that I work with and, and visit. Um, so I'm eager to hear what Sidwell's really like yeah. from you. But 
but maybe we take a step back from that. Okay. You, you grew up, you're a, a kid from DC, yep. right? Um, and sort of had this experience of going from public neighborhood schools in DC, mm-hmm. which are not known for the types of things that I just described, like being wealthy <laughs> yeah. and progressive and all those things, to, um, to being, uh, is it safe to say, a scholarship kid? At Sidwell? Yeah, I guess it is. Is that there a was, fair... It was, there was a combination of scholarship, loans, and second mortgage yeah, okay. that added up to make so Sidwell that's complicated. achievable. Yeah. Um, and just as I said it, I realized that it, it rings a little false, just the, the, the lingo, scholarship kid. Yeah. It's, it's oversimplifying. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was not, without significant financial yeah. assistance and uh, dancing, yeah. I would not have gone to Sidwell. What do you mean dancing? Like the, the tricks my mom pulled yeah, to, yeah. to make like the whole mortgaging thing. Yeah. 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 Because that's real. What oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. people say, oh, second mortgage, like it's an expression. Yeah. No, I remember there was certain, my mother was pretty transparent about our financial situation. Mm-hmm. And I can remember her sitting at the table and writing checks. We had gone through bankruptcy during my childhood. Mm-hmm. So there was all kinds of extra paperwork. And I uh, know there was a program called Night Tuition Payment Plan, K-N-I-G-H-T. I remember that envelope a lot. Because it was, I, mean, I started going there when I was 13, mm-hmm. seventh, or t- yeah, 12, 13, seventh grade. And then I graduated in uh, 95. So that's, you're pretty self-aware during those teen years. Sure. And you're hyperdramatic and hormonal as well. So you're like, my mom's doing a lot for me. Yeah. You know, like, and I'm, I'm aware of it in the moment, more so in hindsight, because I'm like grown now and have more respect for what parents do. Mm-hmm. But even as a snotty little teenager, I was like, this is a big deal. So what was, what was seventh yeah. grade like? Seventh grade was the first year. And it was, uh, it was weird. It was, so biologically, I'm going through hmm. puberty. Yeah. Right? I've got my voice is cracking. I'm, armpit sweat happens now. <laughs> acne happens yeah. now. I got glasses. Mm-hmm which is just such a condemnation of yes. a young person in, in that period of their lives. Maybe not today. I feel like Maybe, less so now, right? Glasses are probably cool because, like, Warby Parker's cool and, like, <laughs> pop culture people wear glasses is now. Is Warby Parker cool? Like, it's among a hipstery set. Like, yeah. even hipstery is cool. Like, right, right. geek is actually chic now. And oh, Warby Parker's super cool, by the way, because they sponsor podcasts. So <laughs> there you go. Warby Parker. Yeah, Squarespace, all those guys are cool. I don't know who you're sponsored. I don't mean, like, None. talk out of turn. But, <laughs> that's why I'm saying uh, it. You should get Warby Parker and exactly, Squarespace to sponsor you. I'll, uh, I'll send a tweet. Please. And they'll ignore it. <laughs> so um, the point is, like, seventh grade wasn't just an introduction to Sidwell. It was, like, an introduction to this new body. Yeah. And... Uh, and I had come out of Bancroft Elementary School in D.C., uh, Columbia Heights, Mount Pleasant neighborhood, which was all black and brown. There were mm-hmm. two white kids that I can remember in our year. And uh, this was the flip. There was also, so Sidwell was a commute first. Yeah. You know, this was not walking to school. I had to take a bus or two to get there, cross mm-hmm. Rock Creek Park and a whole other ward in the city. There was a campus Never been on a campus mm-hmm. before. Like, I've been in a building. Right. My elementary school was a pretty big building, but it was still one structure. This had, like, wings and an art center and field hockey. I didn't even know what field hockey, yeah. lacrosse, literally I'd never heard of it's these. like a college. As sports. Yeah. You know, it was like yeah, being yeah. a little college campus. Um, there was money mm-hmm. in terms of my peer group. So you had, you know, visiting my new friends' homes who live in Georgetown and Potomac and mm-hmm. McLean and... Parts of the city that I didn't know existed because I existed in these lines, um, in these commuting lines, if not an actual box, which was huge to me as a kid. So that was different. Um, 
new black kids, like black kids with money, never experienced that before. Mm-hmm. Black kids have been in private school their whole lives. Like, you're a weird type of black person. I don't mm-hmm. even understand how to talk to you. Uh, and then girls, ah, like all kinds of girls. Like, there was just like a whole new, and I don't think it was just a Sidwell thing. I think it was like a 13-year-old thing. Right, right. I was like, what am I supposed to, yeah. do, I, do I whisper? Do I pass a note? <laughs> do I run? Um, do I act like I'm super cool and know exactly what I'm doing, which I clearly do not. Um, so yeah, it was all that, and there was um, a lot of resources, and the Quaker thing. You know, we had this. Sidwell is a member of the Society of Friends. is born of this Quaker tradition. Mm-hmm. So we had meeting for worship every week. We had community service that was a commitment that was just built into the student body, mm-hmm. um, which was really consistent with how I was raised. Because mm. my mom and I, we would work with local soup kitchens and. Just as a matter of course, there was right. never a weird thing to do. Like every week we would deliver something, we'd go ride in the van, we'd distribute soup and donuts and all kinds of stuff. So that was a pretty consistent overlap with Sidwell. But it was a ba- basically culture shock and excitement. Um, and, oh, Jewish people, that was also new. I'm just like remembering everything that was new. I remember I got my first invitation to a bat mitzvah. And, like, no one, there should be a little guide to, like, the little black kid, the scholarship kid. It's another chapter. Yeah, how to be a student in a private school. Yeah. Like, here are the new languages. Mm -hmm. Here's what Jap means. Oh, my God. I remember being in the room, and this kid was talking to the counselor. He was complaining about all the Japs. I was like, can you say that? I'm thinking, like, World War II. Because he thought he was talking about Japanese. Yeah, I'm like, he's talking about Japanese and Pearl Harbor stuff. And the later Jewish American princess, like, yeah. I didn't even know what that meant because it sort of implied like princess, precious. But again, there was no, the introduction is just immersion. It was like total immersion mm-hmm. in this other culture. And then you'd have, so seventh grade, long answer to your story, to your question, was a transition year. It was a rebuilding year in the sports metaphor. And it was, it was a big adjustment to New friends, new physical environment, new class dynamics, new language, a literal like new set of vocabulary terminology. And then it, was, it led to you know, smoother eighth and, and forever. I ended up having a successful, occasionally tumultuous, but overall good, solid time at that school and being really grateful that I went there because I think it opened up so many doors later. Were you ever resentful? Did you ever feel like, did you ever wish that you were going to the neighborhood junior high or high school or wish that you could just be like the other kids? Yeah, there were times. So there was one year of overlap, that seventh grade year, where I still lived in my original D.C. neighborhood okay. in Columbia Heights. And like that was just a, it was a strange physical commute Yeah, because my hours started getting shifted. Every once in a while I would overlap, though, with kids who I've gone to elementary school with. And there's definitely a separation. You know, you can't, like if you don't spend eight hours a day you go from eight hours a day or six hours a day or whatever your whole life to like occasionally bumping into someone at a bus stop or as you're walking to the convenience store in your neighborhood. Right. That's just a barrier. It emerges between you. Yeah. Proximity is everything yeah. in so many ways. And you take that away. And so you, you lose friends, you lose contact, not in like a dramatic, dastardly, shame-filled way, but just like circumstance. I don't know you as well as I used to. I don't right. know what you did all day long, and you don't know what I did all day long. So we grow apart. So yeah, there were some like sad moments of just realizing, like I can't go back, and I'd like with these people who I'd known for the first twelve years of my life, which mm-hmm. is a hundred percent of my life, mm-hmm. are now like this minor percent. So that that was um, 
occasionally annoying, sad, difficult, but I was also so busy. Like, a school like Sidwell keeps you, get, you get there earlier, you stay later, right. it consumes your weekends. Right. There's not a whole lot of time for reflection mm-hmm. about, like, oh, what maybe, what have I lost? Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. like, I gained, you know, a whole new set of friends and a whole new pile of homework. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was much more intense than than what I'd been through. And a new before. social life. And an absolutely yeah. new social life, yeah. And um, So, yeah, I forget where your question started, but I think I probably... Well, I, I guess some of it. I'm, I'm also interested in... Um, so you, you went to Harvard mm-hmm. after Sidwell, right? Yep. Um, and you've had this illustrious career that the, the bio right. reflects and whatnot. The one that you refuse to finish, but um, that's fine. Yes, yes, they can read it. Um, <laughs> And you, you know, you started out in a neighborhood. Now I'm not familiar with the Columbia Heights neighborhood, mm-hmm. so maybe before I continue and blunder myself into like a stereotype, yeah. What's that? Na- what was your neighborhood? So that neighborhood like? was, um, you know, I was born in '77. Uh, I was born into that neighborhood and lived in one house until basically 1990, mm-hmm. uh, and then moved to Tacoma Park, Maryland. So the first 13 years, Columbia Heights. Heavily black and Latino. Mm-hmm. Started off as like mostly black. Mm-hmm. Then a big wave of Central American immigration, Honduras, El Salvador, started moving more into the neighborhood, so it became increasingly Latin. Um, very few white people in the neighborhood. I would say lower middle class. Like there was a subsidized housing project right across the street. No huge like Cabrini Green type Chicago towers right. or, or East New York massive towers or Rockaway. But, uh, you know, this blend... And then the 80s, like America, you know, this neighborhood was struck by crack and, right. and drug dealing and police raids and gang territorial disputes for the economic, blah, 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 blah. So you know, my recollection, again, I was a child, so I have a child's memory of this neighborhood. Everything is larger than life. But it was of a relatively mixed, awesome, clean block party having neighborhood yeah. that slowly transitioned into like a little bit more of a siege mentality with, you know, occasional like helicopters flying over, cops kicking in people's doors, a lot of stoop activity, you yeah. know, underground economic, uh, locally grown activity in terms of uh, cocaine and crack and probably marijuana. So, and there was a church right across the street, Episcopal Church. They ran a shelter and a uh, soup kitchen called Loaves and Fishes out of there. There's another Baptist church across 16th. So the intersection is 16th and Newton. It's in the northwest quadrant of the city. It wasn't as far as the spectrum of, like, D.C. extreme went. Yeah. It wasn't the heart of the war. Right. You know, southeast, Anacostia, much harsher, much more violent. Uh, but it had its share of ugliness, and it, it was not spared. You've described your mother as being really focused on your education, mm-hmm. really focused on your success. She, you know, went way out of her way for you to be able to go to Sidwell. Yep. What else did she get you involved with um, to, to keep you busy, to keep your mind engaged, yeah. to, you know, help you to grow? So I think um, if there is anything I owe, like my current situation to, mm-hmm. it would be my mother. Sure. And that's not new. Yeah. Like, that's probably true of most people. Certainly biologically, mm-hmm. there would be no us without yes. our moms. Like, sorry, dads, but they carried us and yeah. then they spat us out. Um, but they don't actually spit. I mean, yeah. Okay. Science wise, okay, you know. it doesn't work that yeah, way. Yeah. But you know, I did. You know that. I took some electives yeah. in the science. <laughs> okay. The, um, so yeah, so she crafted this path in hindsight, which seems really brilliant. And I don't know how much of it 
was like foresight and absolute knowledge versus she was just trying sure. anything that right. could work to maintain some sanity in this increasingly chaotic environment. So early on, I would say here are the set of like non-scholastic, mm-hmm. out-of-home you know, institutions that my mother brought me into. Early on, I was a, I was a Head Start kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did the Head Start program. I guess that's a year. I'm not, I was super tiny, so I don't really know. It's probably paperwork to answer that question. Uh, but that was cool. And then I was at my Bancroft Elementary School. There was a before and after school care program. So mm-hmm. I got to school early. There'd be breakfast. We'd play games. I'd stay after school. We'd do our homework together. There were other adults minding us and helping us. We'd play tag, but we also did, like, exercises. And then my mother would pick me up from the after-school program. We'd take the extra food from there and go to Martha's Table, mm. which was the big D.C. soup kitchen shelter operation. Mm-hmm. So that was at least once a week we did that. I was enrolled in a soccer league, mm-hmm. the Stoddard Soccer League, and so that was, like, Probably all day Saturday kind of thing, and we play. We weren't that good, but it took up a lot of hours and physical activity and teamwork and all that stuff that's important for a child's development. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the youth orchestra program, the DC Youth Orchestra program, which needs to have a documentary made about it. Mm-hmm. My older sister was also a product of that. Okay. Um, so I started off very young, Suzuki violin, like age six. Wow. Get my ear trained, learn to work with other kids. Did that, just as a sign, did that, could, could you really grab and grab onto the violin at age six? My daughter's six and she yeah. wants to learn. She keeps asking us that she wants to take violin lessons. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I mean, you can, you can do it at the six. The beauty of a kid is like, you can turn them into almost anything you want at a certain <laughs> point. I mean, in some ways, like it's, it's actually a contradiction. It says, we all come with our own like imprint. Yeah. You know, we have a personality that's going to emerge regardless of yeah. what our parents try to do. Yeah. And like as a parent, I'm not even one, but I'm a, enough of a uncle God sure. parent to see like, you're not going to change that no. kid. doesn't matter how much like yeah. little Einstein you shove at them. They're not into mm-hmm. that. They're mm-hmm. into this. They're not into art. They're into science. But at the same time, like they absorb, mm-hmm. we absorb so much. Um, so yeah, the, the Suzuki violin thing was probably like a happy coincidence where it's like, okay, yeah, there's a power of malleability of a little kid and it had some innate gift for something artistic yeah. and, and maybe specifically musical. Mm-hmm. So the DC Youth Orchestra program, I did that for years playing bass. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I think through sixth grade, I was like touring with a tiny little orchestra, played wow. at the Kennedy Center. Yeah. Uh, Boy Scouts, yeah. you know, it was part of the Boy Scouts of America, but it was like a special flavor. It was all black Boy Scout troop, which had a little militancy to it. Uh-huh. And you, you mean like um, it was intentionally all black, or just I think it was happenstantially. Yeah, I think I just made up a word, but sure. it sounded so good. Happenstantially, it's yeah. a nice new adverb. Um, yeah, it was DC. So it was DC in the eighties. It's mostly black. The neighborhood we were in was mostly black. So yeah. it wasn't restricted. It wasn't like if a white kid showed up. Like, no, I Get don't out. think they're allowed to do that. <laughs> this is the Black Scouts now. This is not your father's boy yeah. scouts, literally. So yeah, so that was going camping. Um, Did you say it was more militant? I said it had a slightly, you know, it was like a pride, a pride-filled yeah, okay. black, you know, tinge to it. It was definitely okay. not like militant. Um, and then I was in a Pan-Africanist society called Ankobia, which was like this youth rites of passage program that borrowed traditions from West Africa and applied them to young black kids in the urban American context. Mm-hmm. And that was more explicitly militant in terms of its orientation, its politics. Yeah. You know, and what, what, like, what age did you start that? So I started that when I started at Sidwell. That okay. was the balancing act yeah. that, that my mother struck. So I was 12 years old, 13 years old. So she, she really didn't want you to um, sort of miss out 
on that cultural side yeah. of things at the same time as being in like this extremely sort of like I wouldn't say mainstream it's it's even more sort like of elite white stream. and progressive yeah. than or, I don't know what liberal yep no I didn't I, than, in fact I didn't, I didn't there was nothing about my childhood there wasn't very much about my childhood that was typical yeah or quote unquote mainstream yeah like our diet wasn't mainstream what was your diet we she, my mother was a health food nut uh-huh. so we shopped at cooperatives and farmers markets this is when it was harder to be a health food yeah nut. this it's was not, not like popular. today where I, I just, I just not walked it. by a, a gluten-free bakery yeah which was, i don't know if that's any healthier than the non-gluten organic was yeah, hard no it was, there was no whole food was hard maybe I don't think there, there was, was no whole, whole foods, foods then probably there, only in austin there was a store um that started to emerge called fresh fields mm-hmm. which whole foods eventually acquired okay and they started buying up all the competition and yeah. to be Whole Foods. But we shopped at the Tacoma Co-op in mm-hmm. Tacoma Park, Maryland. And I remember we'd get like granola and rice big cakes. Bags. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like tofu. Yeah. And, um, I was actually a little carob? gardener. Were you? I I'm made a few years fun older than carob. you. So I, 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 carob is BS. Yeah. We uh, were sugar-free for like five years. We had no sugar. So carob Yeah, we, was... we were skim milk early uh-huh. on yeah. uh, and grape nuts. Yep. So we had like basically sand for cereal mm-hmm. and watered down milk. It was not a happy household <laughs> from a dietary perspective. We never had red meat. My mother never cooked a uh-huh. hamburger or like ribs. Yeah. Or I didn't have steak until like college. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Uh, so that, yeah, it wasn't like, there was no typical America. It wasn't like burgers and fries. And she was very focused on your holistic health. Absolutely. Like we would go camping as a family. Like, yeah. we would, our vacations were very budget friendly. Right. We would drive. We explored the whole East Coast by the time I was 13. Mm-hmm. And we would stay in national parks. Mm-hmm. It was you know, $10 a night. That's the cheapest hotel you could possibly find. We would borrow tents from friends of hers through work who had tents that mm-hmm. we could borrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was like, it, it was a very rich childhood, but a very low cash childhood. Yeah. And it was, it was a range. You know, even as I say it out loud, like you had the arts. You had physical activity. You had the outdoors. You had black history and culture. You had academic. And that brings me to the next one. I could probably, I think there, there are probably 15 things that I'm coming up on as a list right now. Mm-hmm. Between the youth orchestra and the camping, um, the bike trips we used to take just because. Uh, but there was also this academic extracurricular higher achievement program, which was sort of school after school. Right. This is a, a very explicitly youth development Thing that has shifted, I think, from a extraction model of like let's find the gifted and talented kids and place them in private schools mm-hmm. uh, and sort of rescue them to a much more like saturation immersion model. Like let's try to change a whole school right. and see if we can affect you know the mindset, the culture, and, and the outcomes mm-hmm. of a whole unit um, and not just the sort of exceptional talent and tenth kind of model. So I started doing high achievement probably in fifth grade. You know, ten years old going after Bancroft to Sacred Heart School, which was where this program was housed. So mm-hmm. Higher Achievement would, we would have like our own reading lists. We'd have volunteer tutors and teachers who were young professionals in D.C. and probably some trained educators. I'm not, you know, I was a kid, so I didn't really understand all the uh, bureaucracy sure. uh, and organizational structure of it. Yeah. But yeah, there was this guy, Tommy and Ed Lazier. They ran our, our unit Really cool dudes. So yeah, we'd read awesome books and like have to write reports. We take algebra, take an algebra in like fifth, sixth grade, um, and we go on field trips. And there was a summer program as well, probably four to six weeks 
of like day in day out school mm-hmm. and like little Olympic games and physical activities. So it was basically extra education, mm-hmm. and it qualified me academically to even apply to a place like Sidwell. Like mm-hmm. without HAP, mm-hmm. I never would have. I doubt very much. I would never is a strong word. I certainly wouldn't have been as successful as Sidwell as I was mm-hmm. because that can be a harsh academic leap, even from being in the gifted and talented program at the public school to go into a place that like has professors essentially as teachers. Yeah. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's like a lot of different um <laughs> It's a full time I don't even know how she managed to work during all this. Even saying it out loud is a bit overwhelming. Yeah, but but all, but also for you as a partic- participant in all oh, of that. Oh yeah. Like and 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 part of what I wonder is like um it all sounds great and a lot mm-hmm. of it sounds fun, but it's so much. Yeah. And like is that what we need do we does everybody need to do what you did in order for us to have a better, you know, better system and have everybody be able to be successful and have the opportunities that, that you have now. And so I think there, there are at least two extra comments on this. One was my mother's attitude and my attitude. And my, I have an older sister who had a similar treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, she was nine years ahead. So not all the resources were exactly the same, but right. she went to magnet school, Duke Ellington School for the Arts, right. went to Carnegie Mellon. She played oboe in the DC Youth Orchestra. What does she do now? Now she runs a, two yoga institutes oh, in wow. Lansing, Michigan. One is uh-huh. a donation-based yoga studio uh-huh. called Just Be Yoga, uh-huh. letter B. Her name is Belinda. Uh-huh. And the other is a yoga nonprofit focused on therapeutic yoga for people with extreme autism, uh-huh. cerebral palsy, post-traumatic stress. Uh, so folks on the edge of whatever spectrum you could think of. Right. Um, but the overall mis- mission is a, a yoga to the people-ish vibe. Like right. Low cost, no pretense. Right. Not yoga as like an elitist young sort of. and thin and white and yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Um, so bringing yoga back to where it's actually started, but in the U.S. has become this very uh, upper crust kind of thing. So she, prior to that, she was a journalist for over 20 years. She mm-hmm. was a newspaper editor. In Dallas, in New York, in Poughkeepsie, and uh, in Lansing, and uh, yeah, so so yeah. So I interrupted you. So um, yeah. So I think the the two things to come back to are the the amount of like effort and pressure from my mother was it was deft. You know, there wasn't she wasn't cracking a whip. This mm-hmm. wasn't the tiger mom. Mm-hmm. This wasn't, you know, there, I have so many friends whose parents are in, immigrants mm-hmm. and they went through some similar types of things I did, but it was like at the barrel of a gun. Mm. My mother's take wasn't, it was fun, mm-hmm. you know, and I wanted to do it as much as like she facilitated it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, like, if you don't join this youth orchestra, you're a terrible son and mm-hmm. you, if we'll never make it out of here. So there was no punitive element to all this extra activity it was more of a like you can like explore and and be great in whatever way you see fit Mm -hmm. and there wasn't a specific path she was promoting it wasn't like oh i'm signed up to all the like pre-med stuff or right she wasn't trying to sort of get you to do a a certain thing this wasn't you're gonna join you know a professional soccer team right or you're gonna be an nfl great or you're gonna be the best singer a ticket out of here yeah Yeah. so the pressure to like carry the family out of poverty wasn't there right it was mostly like i'm is a great way to meet friends and have fun and like fill your time and i'm working full-time i can't be around all the time so Mm -hmm. i'm gonna trust these other surrogate you know Mm -hmm. families Mm -hmm. to be there for you um and then the other is i don't think 
when I say it out loud now, it sounds like every day there's 15 things going on. This was over a you know, 16-year period. So it wasn't like sure. I was doing all these in parallel. Right. Um, and I dropped things. Like I didn't stay with the orchestra my whole childhood. In fact, one of the annoyances from my mother was that I was constantly dropping things. She's like, well, I thought you wanted to play the bass. And then I'm taking up Taekwondo. Right. Well, I thought you wanted to do Taekwondo. And now I'm all about track and field. Well, I mm-hmm. thought you were about track and field. And now I'm, all, I'm wrestling. Well, I thought you were about wrestling. And now I'm into computers. And um, so it was really frustrating. I can remember some conversations of like, I've spent this money on bass lessons. Right. And now you're not playing the bass anymore. So you want to play saxophone now? Is that what it is? Now we, we like rented this sax and mm-hmm. you're not even doing music anymore. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it was overwhelming in both directions in mm-hmm. hindsight where like I don't, I don't really know them I'm a little kid and yeah. what I want maybe depends on what the cute girl is into right. as well and I'm not going to tell my mom about that right. so I think sort the of. answer is not my life certainly mm. I think that's that means the answer is my mom and not everybody can have my right. mom however right. the answer is directionally you know my life mm-hmm. exposure mm-hmm. exploration low stakes um exposure where it's not like again it's not you're my ticket you're this whole family's ticket out of poverty so many movies you know yeah. paint that story of right. like whether it's basketball or you chess got your or, five younger yeah. siblings are counting on yeah. you and then you get kids taking payola like it's just a yeah. lot to put on like an unstable hormonal being that's a right. 13 to 17 year old kid right so but it is a matter of like thinking about the parts of the mind and the body that need development there's an artistic exposure there is a group and team dynamic and like playing well with others Mm -hmm. there's an intellectual depth there is a geographic exposure like get out of your hood Mm -hmm. you know yeah we lived in this neighborhood that a lot of crime and violence and there were murders but also saw literally the entire east coast by the time i was 13 yeah and we were in the blue ridge mountains and it didn't cost that much to do it um so we had a motivated uh liaison and guide in the form of my mother Mm -hmm. we also had a couple of institutions that she could lean on she had the boy scouts she had the teachers at my school she had this uh youth orchestra program and all of them were economically accessible yeah it wasn't just because she either had like a wealth of network in terms of she knew the right people Mm -hmm. to like plug in like i'm gonna get you into this montessori thing because i know the head of the thing and it wasn't just cash she didn't buy her way in with dollars. She wouldn't really have the dollars. But there was a level of community that spanned, that wasn't all on the school either. It wasn't like she just trusted the school to like fix everything, that had these institutions. Some was her, some of these third parties, some was the actual educational body. And it added up to like this rich but low cost cash out, except for Sidwell, um, path. So even without the Sidwell, I think I would have been fine. You know? that, that's what was on my mind too. Is like, yeah. could, couldn't with all those things, it seems like there you, you didn't necessarily need. No, I think she wanted to supercharge but, it, but and she, it was also the. But al- she also wanted you to have a good positive experience. Her right? thing, what was going on for her as well was, she didn't want to play too much of favorites between me and my sister. Mm. And my sister had gone to Catholic school and magnet school and a specialized school for the arts, and so my mom was like, "Well, I gotta hook up this little boy with right, some right. special schooling of some kind just right. to balance out the karma. Um, and then the other thing was the alternative. You know, she was pretty worried about the typical school that I was supposed to go to. 
Just safety wise. Yeah, right? safety yeah. wise and like opportunity wise. It was not that school that it doesn't even exist anymore. Like they closed it. There's another school in its place now. Um, it's on 16th near uh, what's that cross street? Columbia Road. There's okay. a school at the corner of 16th and Columbia. It used to be called Abraham Lincoln Junior mm-hmm. High School. It was very, very not good place to be in the yeah. early 90s. And it's now it's some modern new thing with like probably shiny teachers and whatnot. But she my mother teachers. didn't want me to go there. Yeah. So she was that big at the search right, right. for like a private school possibility. And why not the best? Yeah. And then, you know, it worked out with Sidwell. So know. there's a there's an idea out there that there's a bias in black communities mm-hmm. against playing the oboe or playing the bass or right. um, going to a academic program, being um, academically oriented. Yeah. Do you do you feel that there really that there's a substantial challenge there in um, for you know young kids try, today trying to do the same th- types of things that you were doing the extracurricular stuff? Is there pressure to not be you know nerdy or to not be interested in things other than you know girls and sports? Um, so I will caveat this with I don't spend a ton of time with little people. Yeah. Uh, because they got germs yeah. and they're really rude. They're a little gross. Uh, they, I don't want to get sick. <laughs> but I, I have a feeling there is a split. I think in general there is a ton of pressure, cultural pressure, to like not succeed and not pursue books and nerd and geeky things because of this overwhelming commercialization of a slice of hip hop culture, mm-hmm. which says you want all the possessions. How you get it is magic. Right. You know, you run really fast. You hustle. Hustle, dance, yeah. r- rhyme. Um, and so that, that's a, I, I think it's pretty undeniable there's a strong force there. Mm-hmm. I haven't had enough direct contact with like eight to 15 year old little boys on a regular basis to know how damaging it is, just seeing the results a little bit and talking to some of my friends who are in schools um, or have kids, but those kids are not that old yet. The other, though, is seeing this, I think there's a shift, um, even culturally, in like what is cool. Yeah. I definitely hope there is, but like, you look at Zuckerberg, who's wearing a hoodie, mm-hmm. you look at Kanye, who's actually like super smart, mm-hmm. and not hiding that. He's weird, obviously yeah. he's a weird dude, yeah. but he's not playing dumb. No. Um, you look at, you know, Aloe Black and John Legend, like some of the other cultural, even Richard Sherman, mm-hmm. and the thing that popped off with the Seattle Seahawks player and him and Michael Crabtree, mm-hmm. this is a Stanford guy, mm-hmm. you know, who's arguing against his label as a thug, and he's a, the most NFL brute force, you know, barbaric engaged activity, mm-hmm. and he's coming out swinging intellectually. Mm-hmm. So I think there is some shift away from like just the dumb jock the singer alone kind of mentality, I don't think it's enough. And I think there's also this other, outside of like the screens and the media images, the level of like criminalization that's happening with, you know, just police, like over-policing and over-incarcerating, that's a significant hurdle when you don't have dudes around. You know, when yeah. they're locked up hundreds of miles away. Yeah. And when the message from the state is generally, 
like you're disposable. Mm-hmm. You know, you can jack you up against the wall. We're going to put armed guards in your school and like jack you up against the wall in the place where you're supposed to be intellectually and artistically celebrated. Right. Like, I would have turned out really differently in like if every instance I just described, there was an armed guard there. Mm you know, glaring at me, mm-hmm. telling me to mind my step, mm-hmm. put shoving me, like treating me like I was a suspect all the time. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any of that on the camping trips mm-hmm. and in the after school programs and at the youth orchestra. The assumption was of goodwill, of competence, mm-hmm. of capability, uh, and of like happy nature, not of threat. Yeah. And so like this assumption of threat, I think compounds a lot of the pursuits. It's like, oh, you're going to treat me like I'm a monster. I probably should act like a monster. Yeah, sure. So, and I know I benefited from never really being immersed in that environment. I mm-hmm. touched up against it, just living in D.C., but every other environment I was in, which was like, oh, you're probably a good person. You probably know what you're doing. I can probably leave you alone for five seconds without you burning down the whole civilization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So aside from, from all of this you know, sort of what you came in with mm-hmm. and your experience there coming from this other neighborhood. Just what was Sidwell like? I mean, was it, was it as awesome as I sort of, I portray it as like, you know, this awesome, very egalitarian, very intellectually uh, engaging and culturally rich. You know, this is my mind. Like, yeah. you know, I went to public schools. I've, I've never even really visited any private schools. Yeah. I really don't know what it's like. And Sidwell to me is like the school on the hill. You know, I mean, if, if the Obama girls go there. It's... Uh it's actually a really good school. Yeah. And I think any place like that, Sidwell and Harvard have so much in common, so I've mm-hmm. got a double dose. Mm-hmm. In years in like these lauded institutions mm-hmm. that have capital campaigns mm-hmm. um, to teach people things. So the downside is every like human frailty plays out in a place like that too. Mm-hmm. There are incompetent teachers. Sure. Uh, I remember we had a, a, a language teacher who was just, I was the first time I heard the word tenure. Mm. And I'm in eighth grade. Yeah. And we universally as students were like near rising up about this particular teacher who was not good. Yeah. And, but she has tenure. Yeah. She's, I don't, what does that even, so that means we have to keep being taught badly. Like mm-hmm. that's, what, that's what I learned tenure meant. Right. As a 13, 14 year old. Right. Um, that happens. I, I remember teaching we had a special project in one of our math classes in high school and I volunteered as a part of this extra credit thing to like teach a, a session on non-Euclidean geometry. And so I'd research as much as I could. I used the library. This is pre-internet. Mm-hmm. And I used these, made these 3D models of like how to, one of them, I still remember this, like the beauty of non-Euclidean geometry. I can't believe we were talking about this. Like parallel lines meet. Okay. In non-Euclidean geometry, because you're right. Parallel lines meet. Yeah, okay. on a sphere. Like, they can be parallel at one okay. point, and they intersect as the world <laughs> bends underneath it. Okay. Like, if you wrap a string around a ball, uh-huh. you wrap one string, and then the other one's parallel, eventually they'll cross because of the nature of space bending, okay. and the nature of sphere. I'm like, that was cool. So I just demonstrated this with, like, a ball and two rubber bands. Mm-hmm. And the class was like, they're like, yo, you killed it. You're, like, way better than our whack math teacher. And I was like, oh, that's awesome for me. Wait a minute, but we're paying right. a lot of money here. <laughs> so those two, those are the exceptions, yeah. honestly. Um, but that, that, so did that stuff played out. Then you have the cultural thing of like entitlement. Mm-hmm. And it can be very risky to be a, in an environment where like there's that much potential wealth and like cars and big houses and like the values might get skewed. Um, Sidwell checked it a bit because of the Quaker thing. 
mm-hmm. community service. Like, get these kids off this campus and into the real world. Mm-hmm. And, like, let's try to orient them towards service and the types of speakers they brought in. Mm-hmm. They, they weren't just, like, they weren't, like, eye bankers. They were, like, political okay. right. revolutionaries. They brought William F. Buckley in, too, wow. though. Like, yeah. So they wanted to expose you. Yeah. And then racially, you know, that was the trickiest thing. Um, Sidwell played out in many ways like a microcosm of America. Like, black kids were definitely disciplined more, and it mm-hmm. wasn't an explicit program. There's, like, implicit sure. bias, and right. this stuff happens. So when you see all those types of things happen, you look at black faculty, and it's like, mm-hmm. oh, how many black faculty do we really have? So the school struggled with that, like, a lot of places. How do they react to it? Mm-hmm. So the one incident that, for me, makes all the, like, annoyance and dirt of Sidwell okay in the end was this. We had... You know, Black Student Union, we, we petitioned the Board of Trustees. We did a whole report. I led the effort to write this report mm-hmm. about the status of students of color and how jacked up it all was. Mm-hmm. Now we need reform. Mm-hmm. I'm like 15, 16 mm-hmm. years old. So even that opportunity, perverse as it is, was good. Yeah. Uh, it shouldn't have to be on a 15, 16-year-old to be like addressing the board about issues of diversity and, and education. But that's the kind of place it was or the type of person I was or both. At any rate... We proposed to address these issues of like uh, discrimination and punishment, of lack of black faculty, of curricular diversity through the arts. Hmm. And so we brought in a director from American University, this black woman had done a lot of workshop theater type stuff, Mm -hmm. brought in a professor from Howard and Rhetoric who was also a Sidwell parent. Hmm. And we basically wrote our own play Hmm. about being black as Sidwell. Yeah. And it was a staged reading. We didn't memorize the whole line, but we blocked it. We acted out. We had the script in our hands. Yeah. And this wasn't metaphor. Right. This was like scenes playing out from our experience right. in class, in the principal's office, with a coach, with a student, with a parent, and just like holding up a mirror yeah. to this audience of mm-hmm. teachers and staff and students. So it was performed for the whole yeah. school. Yeah. Wow. We performed this live in yeah. front of everyone without them screening it yeah. and like approving it wow. like they didn't say like we demand all the text yeah. before you infect our minds mm-hmm. with your propaganda they're like yeah okay go ahead and then they gave us two to three hours after that to run small group conflict resolution style discussion mm-hmm. groups where we had we had all been trained mm-hmm. in like moderation mm-hmm. interviewing like right. we were mildly professionally trained facilitators yeah. and we had flip boards and yeah. prompting questions yeah. and we had a note taker in every room. Mm-hmm. So I've got in a file cabinet in New Jersey, a packet of inch, inch and a half thick of all the handwritten notes from this like half day that Sidwell gave a bunch of kids yeah. to share their feelings and possible solutions about like inclusiveness. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there was a lot of bullshit. There's a lot of parents who like are just idiots. There are probably students there who are idiots. Like not everyone's brilliant at yeah. a place like Sidwell. Sure. But their um, trust, you know, in a bunch of teenagers and a few grown-ups, but mostly a bunch of teenagers, to, like, engage in this discussion at an adult level. Yeah. They didn't pander. They didn't pat us on the head and be like, oh, mm-hmm. why don't we bring in some outside person? And they, like, gave us the mic. Right. And then trusted we wouldn't shout fire in a crowded room and yeah. hate or whatever. That was that was Sidwell. Yeah, that was the great the greatest moment there. Isn't that um, amazing that it didn't cost them anything? It yeah, but it, it, well, here's what it cost them: the most precious thing, time. Yeah, you know, parents are spending. I don't know how much Sidwell costs. Is it thirty k a year? I have no idea. Right. 
public or private school, you don't just like decide to like shift classes for a whole morning because some kids want to put on a political performance art project that wasn't scheduled a year in advance. Mm -hmm. You know, this was reactive to significant tension. Yeah. So they bumped someone's lesson. Yeah. They bumped some booked guest. um, And somebody, I'm sure there was a debate in the teacher's lounge about like, but I have to prepare these kids for college. Right. You know, and that means they got to learn about Genghis Khan and I need that 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, So I will feel a sense of gratitude for the school and my mother, you know, for what is, not even for what it's worth, that's the wrong phrase, but there were at least two occasions where she almost pulled me out of Sidwell Mm. because of the combination of cost and drama. Mm. The cost was always a stress, even with the dancing that she did. It was not easy and that we just had to cut corners in other places, but add to that race bullshit Mm -hmm. and like political drama. She's like, why are we sacrificing so much for you to go through all this. Like yeah. you're the 10th grade, you're the vice president of the BSU and you're meeting with the principal. And the, I didn't sign up for this. Yeah. I don't think you should have to go through this. And we lived in a district by that point in Montgomery County where uh, Blair high school had a great magnet program. Mm. We owned a house out there. So we're paying proper, we're literally paying for yeah. two schools. So you had different options. At I had, I've, I've yeah. my sophomore year. I've spent a whole day. I visited Blair. Yeah. Cause I thought I was going to be leaving Sidwell. Right. And this is a school with like 10,000 kids as far as I was concerned. I have no idea what the population was. It was everybody in Montgomery County went to the school. And the the hallway was just crushing. And I was like, I can't. Are you kidding me? I'm good. Like, I'll deal with the race bullshit. I know these people now. I got a little clout. I have friends. I got people that respect me. Please, mom, let me stay at Sidwell. Mm -hmm. I'll deal with it Mm -hmm. if you'll deal with it. Mm -hmm. And financially, we, we made a deal. And actually, this was a sign of something. I don't know. She was like, all right, look, I'll keep paying for this. College is on you. Mm -hmm. And we like shook on it. Mm -hmm. My sophomore year of high school, I have no idea what college is on you really means. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, she kept paying the tuition and taking out loans. And when it came time for college, um, she fronted some of that cash, Mm -hmm. but I worked jobs through college i had scholarships i had perkins and all the loans that you were able to take and then i paid her back Mm -hmm. before i paid the government back at the end of graduate at the end of my uh, my time at harvard so that was that's my theory of sidwell you know what's (laughs) interesting is like the there's something that those stories share also which is that at each point like what really was meaningful to you is that someone had someone trusted you yeah that here i'll give you this mic i'll let you stay at sidwell you know, I'll do this if you do that. Yeah. You know, and that, that, that trust, and that's what I mean by it didn't cost them anything. Yeah, it cost them time, but you don't, I mean, we talk about spending time, but we yeah. don't really spend time. We, we have priorities and we do what we yeah, do with we, our time. We based all have on the same priorities. 24 hours yeah. of the day. You can't yeah. make it. You can't lose it. Yeah. You can't kill it. You know, I am working on a machine. But oh, good. Keep me, <laughs> keep me in the loop. On it will that. add three minutes to every day. Well, there's some people in the education industry who would, who would like to talk to you about that. They're yeah. always talking about expanding time. Nasty nosebleeds, but otherwise it's perfect. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Baratunde, I know you have to go, and I just want to say I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Please Speak Freely. It was a real pl- pleasure talking Thank to you. Thank you, Eric. Uh, it was fun to look back. Yeah. I hadn't thought so deeply about it in a while, even in the process of writing the book. So thanks for the chance. Yeah.